you will turn in your Bibles to chapter 2. If you find that, you can stand. Habakkuk chapter 2. I'll be reading the first five verses. Habakkuk 2. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like shield, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. We'll pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, for your ministry to us, O God, to restore our souls, that we might walk with you in humility and might know you as life itself. I pray that you would, Lord, minister to us in this time as we look at your word as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we started Habakkuk last week, and we saw that Habakkuk has two very basic but common questions of God. One is, how long, O Lord? And then when God answers that, he says, why? He wonders why God doesn't act quicker to deal with the injustice and violence that we see all around us and the corruption, and God says, I am going to deal with it, and I'm going to use the Chaldeans and Habakkuk just can't believe what he's hearing, that God would use such an evil people to punish the people of Israel. And so he says in verse 12 of chapter 1, can't happen, basically. God, you are from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, we will not die. And so then, after he raises that objection of of how could God do this, why would he use the Chaldeans We come to chapter 2, and he says, I'm just going to wait and see what God will say, and then I will um, reply when he rebukes me, when he he reproves me. So he expects to be corrected by God for his attitude. And I left this last week with saying um, we should not be afraid to tell God what is on our hearts, to ask our questions of God, and I, I stand by that. But I do not mean to infer that Habakkuk's attitude was right. He had a bad attitude. And God knows our attitudes. He knows our hearts. And so we're um, we're not hiding anything from God when we don't go to him with our questions, even when our questions are based on doubt and anger and impertinence. Um, The Lord knows all that. But we can't move to faith, and that, this book is going to end with a tremendous statement on faith if we are not honest with God about all that's going on in our hearts. And so it's not going to push God away.
for us to come to him as Habakkuk has come to God. We should do that. There are two main statements in the first chapter that we can't forget as we get into the second chapter. The first is in verse 7 of chapter 1. God talking about the Chaldeans, he knows exactly what they're like. And he says, they are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. That's just a fancy way of saying they are absolutely proud. These are the proudest people you will ever meet. They are self-willed. They are in complete rebellion against God. They do not care about God. They never give a thought to what God thinks. They only think about what they want. They are not indifferent toward God. They are in open hostility toward God. They are unyielding. They are obstinate. You could not reason with them. If Habakkuk could have the chance to talk to these people, it would do no good. You ever have anybody in your life like that? You go, even if we could talk, it would do no good. These people are absolutely filled with pride. They are not respecters of people or of God. They have no fear of God. They have no fear of man. They transgress boundaries. They set their own rules and, they, and care about nothing else. It's hard when you are totally disrespected by someone. There is so much pride. It comes out in their anger. You can see it in their eyes. Sometimes it's just by the tilt of the head. And you go, there is no possibility of having a conversation that's meaningful with this person. That was the Chaldeans. And then in response, that second verse, verse 12, where he says, Habakkuk says, we will not die. Now keep those two things in mind. And when we come over to chapter 2, I've drawn a line in my Bible from chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. So Habakkuk has said, I'm going to wait to see what God has to say to me. And then God says in verse 2 and 3, he answers and says, here's the vision, and it, is, it will happen, it will certainly come, it will not delay at the end of verse 3. And then the first words from God's mouth, I know all about the proud one, and I know that you can't reason with him, but this is not an intellectual problem. I know he has no feelings, but this is not an emotional problem. I know that he is self-willed, but this is not a will problem. The proud one, his entire soul is wrong. It's a soul problem. Every aspect of his being is wrong. It is not right within him. He is twisted up. He is self-consumed. He has only one thought, and that is himself. Proud man. And the Chaldeans are proud people. But isn't it interesting that the Lord says, as for the proud one, he doesn't say as for the proud people. And it makes me wonder if he wasn't kind of putting his finger on Habakkuk's chest, that there's pride in Habakkuk. 
and not just with the Chaldeans. It's kind of a gentle rebuke. And it is a bit maybe of the rebuke that he was expecting. But Habakkuk, remember, has just said, we will not die. And God's saying, it's those who live by faith who aren't going to die. What about you, Habakkuk? As for the proud one, his entire being is wrong. You're not going to fix a person like that. We couldn't fix our own proud hearts. Still can't. It is the work of God. God has to expose our pride. God has to humble us. God has to break us. It is the work of God. I don't even know, you know, a, a good example of, of just the picture of pride. And there is nothing another person can do to work humility in a person like that. Only God can. I was happened to see on, on television this week um, part of the retirement speech of Jason Witten, Dallas Cowboy tight end, played for 15 years for the Cowboys. And, um, and I always didn't know much about him, but I always thought this is a pretty honorable guy, um, just by the way he conducts himself on the football field. Um, but he, in his, in his um, retirement speech, through a lot of tears, um, was talking about how he was raised um, by a very abusive father, and his mother um, got the kids away, and then his grandfather took over, and his grandfather was a very good, humble, upright man. And he really invested strongly in the lives of, of Jason Witten and his brother, and when he made it to the level that he did, he never forgot who he was. And he um, is known in the Dallas Cowboy organization for how kind and respectful he was to all people, including the custodians and the security guards there at the stadium. And, and he said he always played um, with his grandfather in mind. And even after making a touchdown, his grandfather told him, don't spike the ball, don't throw it in the stadium, don't run around and do a dance. You take that ball and you walk over to the referee and you hand it to him, respecting the referee. It's pretty powerful. It takes humility to give respect to other people. And it's pride that disrespects others. Pride that won't even consider whether somebody else has the time when we are wanting their time. Pride that won't consider what anybody else has to say when all we want is to express what is on our hearts and minds. That person's soul is not right. And it takes God, and only God, to restore the soul. The last half of verse 4 the righteous will live by faith. That's where I want to spend a chunk of time this morning. Couldn't be a more simple statement, but if there is a, a theme in Scripture, this would be one of the most dominant themes in Scripture. Paul, 
repeats it twice in the New Testament, the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. It is the theme of Romans. It's also repeated in Hebrews. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews are said to be the most doctrinal, heavy chap books in all the New Testament. And all three of those doctrinally heavy books have this verse as the cornerstone. One writer says it's taken three epistles to explain this verse. It's really taken the whole Bible to explain it. Because the truth of this verse is revealed all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The righteous shall live by faith. You sometimes have heard people when they've quoted John 3.16, they've said how you can emphasize every word of that when you quote it, and you could make a sermon after on every word. For God, emphasis on God. So loved, emphasis on love. And you can work through the whole verse that way. The same is true with this verse. The righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness, life, and faith. How do you get to be righteous? That's Romans. So go to Romans with me. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The power that can humble a man from his pride and save him. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Going over to chapter 3, in verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed. One of the purposes of the law is to shut us up. The law cannot give life. It's never meant to give life. The law was meant, in other words, to humble us. Great way to, to learn humility is try to keep the law. Because you can't. The law that under, under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But then he goes on and says in verse 26, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then chapter 4, verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned, and you can put in parenthesis, by God as righteousness. How does a man become righteous? 
It is true in Scripture that righteous people obey God. The reason, and I've made a point of this at different times, especially at Christmas when we look at the Christmas story, the reason that Joseph was considered a righteous man was in part because he was a man who obeyed God. But obedience can't make you righteous. If you are righteous, you will live in obedience. But you cannot become righteous by obedience. It's impossible because no person can fully obey all that God has for us to obey. But God reckons us righteous. God says, no matter what we think, no matter what anybody else should say, God says the person who places his faith in Jesus Christ for righteousness, God says that person is righteous. That is amazing. And we should shout hallelujah. Because there is no deliverance for our souls and how wrong our souls are apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. To become righteous, to have a right soul instead of a wrong soul, his soul is not right within him. How do I get a right soul? How do I become righteous? Jesus. The righteousness of God. I can only trust in you to make this soul that is wrong right. And that is the miracle of redemption and salvation. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Chapter 5 of Romans, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The soul has been made right. A wrong soul has been made right with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Look at the book of Galatians with me. First, second Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians chapter three, beginning in verse six. Even so, Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of the faith, who are of faith, are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So how many things do you not need to do in the law in order to be cursed by the law? One. How many laws are there? 613. Break one of them. 
and you are condemned by the law. Why would we have any hope in our performance? It's impossible to please God, possible to have any confidence, impossible to have any certainty if it is at all based on what we have to do. Because one mess up, one violation of God's law, and we stand condemned. But verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. We become righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. He continues in chapter 3 of Galatians in verse 22, but the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came in, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. If we could by, be, have right standing with God based upon anything that we did, then every person could have a reason to boast before God. But Ephesians 2 says there is no need to boast, and there's no ground for boasting because we are saved by, by the grace of God through faith. So the law has been given to silence us, to shut us up and to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, we're no longer under the law, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteous shall live by faith. Give you a little break here, and just whenever I read shut up, I think about, you know, how my parents raised us never to say those two words in combination with each other, especially directed at another person. We would get in big trouble. And one time I was sitting on the back patio with my older brother, and he was talking with me. He was four and a half, no, he was five and a half years, I forget. He was much older than me, smarter than me. And, um, and he knew my mom was standing at the kitchen window looking out and listening to us. And so I had my back to my mom. I didn't know she was there. And, 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 um, and he said, you know, what are some things that mom and dad don't like us to say? And I said, shut up. Well, my mom called me in the house and she washed my mouth out with soap. <laughs> All she heard was shut up. And so I'm in this house getting my mouth washed out with soap. And I went back outside, you know, after I finished crying and still spitting bubbles. And I sit down with my brother and he goes, man what did you say? And I said, shut up. And so I got, I got my, my mouth washed out again. So I can never read these passages of scripture without thinking about that. The law has come to silence us and to lead us to Jesus Christ. In faith, we make it so complicated. We make faith about our feelings. We make, we make faith about some kind of mystical experience that comes over us. Faith is trust. Faith is dependence. 
Faith is just simply saying to God, if you don't do it, it's not happening. And we don't, we, you know, this is where quitting comes in. If there's ever a good place to quit, this is it. Because you have given up on yourself. You have no confidence in what you can do. And you simply say, God, I quit. If you don't save me, I am not going to be saved. And you put it in his hands. Faith is trusting the activity of someone else. Taking your hands off of it. It is not at all up to us. It is totally up to God. That's all it is. It's quitting. Stopping. Resigning. Just saying, Jesus, you've got to do it. And God says, that's all I'm looking for. Is for you to give me the freedom to be the soul restorer that only I can be. And he does. And he counts us righteous as we simply ask him to do what only God can do. Incredible. Restores our souls. Humbles us. But most important, brings us to life. We live. Because he gives us Jesus. And the scripture says that Jesus is himself eternal life. The last passage in the New Testament that mentions this verse is in Hebrews chapter 10. And it's the lead up to chapter 11, the one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, the faith chapter. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author is trying to encourage people to not fall away from the faith and not to, to throw in the towel because of the persecutions and the difficulties that life throws at us. And so in verse 36 of Hebrews 10, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised for yet a little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. So that's, again, the third time that the New Testament quotes from Habakkuk 2. My righteous one shall live by faith. And the emphasis here is on the faith. If he shrinks back, in other words, he's not exercising faith, my soul has no pleasure in him because God only delights in faith. He can take no pleasure in anything else. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the persevering, to the preserving of the soul. And then all of chapter 11, one person after another who has demonstrated faith, just saying, God, I'm trusting you. And we have now this great cloud of witnesses of people who are saying, it is possible to demonstrate faith and in so doing, to know life. There's no person that doesn't want life. And life will never come on our terms. It only comes as we surrender to him, place our faith in him, and contrary to everything the world would say, we live. We know life in exchange for simply placing our faith in him. Habakkuk says we will never die. There's some truth in that. 
And there's some error in that. If what he meant was Christians don't die, Christians don't get punished by God to the point of death, then he's wrong. Obviously, he wasn't using the term Christian, but God's select people, chosen people. If he means that God has made a promise to Israel and Israel will never be annihilated, then he's right. Israel will always exist. But what God focuses on is that there is life for each of us individually only as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. In the Sunday school class today, the question was being asked, what overcomes you? What defeats you? Really what that question asks is, what are you drawing life from? What is the source of life? I had a couple things happen this week that really just took the wind out of me. And I'm just going, Lord. I mean, you just feel like a kick in the gut. And so this has been a helpful study for me again. Where is my source of life? The righteous shall live by faith. And that faith is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, if that's what Habakkuk meant, and I don't think he did, then he's right. But that's where God brings Habakkuk to. And the end of the book is going to be a man who is demonstrating a rejoicing faith. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. It doesn't mean that Habakkuk won't lose his life or everybody else around him. But those who have placed their faith in God are made righteous by God and they live. And they will never die. Jesus once said to the Pharisees, his accusers, which one of the prophets did your fathers not kill? And we don't have the stories. I mean, that's, you, you know, that was, you know, when Jesus said that, I'm, I'm thinking, well, there's going to be a bunch of them. But see, we don't have the whole story in the Old Testament. Habakkuk writes this book, and there's no record here that Habakkuk was killed. But apparently, pretty much all of them were. There's no record that Isaiah was killed for his faith. But, the, but church history, the tradition is, is that he was being hunted and hounded. He hid in a hollow tree, and they found him, and instead of taking him out of the tree, they just sawed him in half while he was still inside the tree. We will not die. Jesus, which one of the prophets did you not kill? Righteous people who live by faith can still be persecuted to the point of death. But 
they will not, not be disciplined by God to the point of death. And a righteous person who's living by faith will know life even when they are hunting him down to kill him. And who doesn't want that? We can have a life like the Chaldeans where we're in charge, but there's no life. Or we can have a life like the prophets who are righteous men because of their faith in God and hunted and hounded like animals, but they live. We don't ask God for an easy life. It's nice when we have it. But life is not in good and pleasant circumstances. We all know that. You can be healthy. You can be rich. You can have a million friends and not have life. We want life. And life comes. Life is Jesus Christ. And we know life only as we trust in him and place our faith in him. One verse. The righteous will live by faith. And as for the proud one, his soul is not right. We're not going to go any further in this chapter this morning. There are five woes here that God pronounces on the Chaldeans, or you could say on the proud. And there are two more statements in this chapter that are just absolutely profound. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Those three statements really control this whole book. But I just want us this morning, I know I need it, to just come back to this most basic truth, which is the cornerstone of our salvation. But it is also the cornerstone of all of life. If you are righteous, and I trust that every person here today is righteous, right before God. If you are righteous, if you have any hope of right standing before God, it is for one reason. You have recognized your need for Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in anything you've done, you will never have the assurance that you are right with him. But if you are trusting Jesus and Jesus alone to save you, even as God reckoned the faith of Abraham to be righteousness, God reckons our faith in Christ to be righteousness. And in Christ, we become the very righteousness of God in him. If you think that faith is anything other than simply yielding to his activity, trusting, depending upon him, you're making it something more than what it is. It is not a feeling. It is not anything you do. It is simply saying, God, you must do.
My faith is in you alone. There has never been a single person who has fixed his own soul. God restores the soul. And he does so as we hand ourselves over to him. He is the savior. He is the sanctifier. He is the glorifier. It is totally his work. And if you're looking for life anywhere other than in him, you will always be disappointed. For Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. I will close this in prayer. It is the simple truths, Lord, that we all need. And I have needed, Lord, the truth of this simple verse. And I thank you for it. I do pray if there are any here, God, who are not sure that they are yours, that they would recognize the truth, God, of what you have said and would simply hand themselves over to you for you to save. I thank you, God, that your word is absolutely true when it says that we can be certain of our salvation because it in no measure depends on us. It depends 100% on you. And you will never fail us. And the one who trusts in you will not be disappointed. You've said that you will save all those who call upon you. And we call upon you, O God, for our salvation. We know, God, that in the day that you cleansed us from all unrighteousness, in the day that you imparted life to us, we were made the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But we also know, Lord, that every day, just as we need breath, we need you. And I pray that we would be a people, God, that continually come to Jesus for life because he is life. And as we face the disappointments of life, as we come up against proud people that cannot be reasoned with and who are hurtful and vile, that our own hearts, God, would be humbled to know that there's nothing in them that isn't in us. And that we would trust in you, O Lord, to save us from ourselves. And we thank you that you do. I pray that you would make us clear, simple, and bold with those, Lord, whose hearts are inclined to you. We know we cannot beat down the pride of others. Only you can do that. But for those, Lord, whose hearts are moving toward the need for you, I do ask, God, that you would make us each clear and bold in leading people not to performance and works and law, but to the saving grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Thank you again, Father, for all that you've done for us in Christ. And for this day where we've again remembered the death of Christ through the communion. That we've been brought into a new covenant. And that we've been given life itself. Jesus himself. In Christ's name.
Amen.